I invite you to remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. It is a longer passage, so if you need to take a seat, that's, that's okay. We're looking at Judges chapter 7. This is a climactic chapter in the Gideon narrative of the Judges cycle. And so we'll be looking at this great, this great story together. So let us give our careful attention, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them, and by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them. I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the other people go, go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of the Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camel were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley, a barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and some to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given, Midian, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel, and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpet and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars they had in their left hand and the torches in their right hand, the trumpets to blow, and they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 
and the army fled from far as Bethshida towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Melad by Tabath. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. We all love underdog and unexpected victories and stories. We can think about this in March Madness. It's why everyone gets behind a school that they've never heard of before that month that comes out of nowhere and starts to upset teams that everyone is well aware of having strong programs. But we also love stories of people succeeding as well, not just sports teams. There's probably many people who, were under, who we could classify as underdogs in life. The one that came to mind as to prepare this sermon is Chris Gardner. His life was made into a a movie in the 2000s called The Pursuit of Happiness. And as we're following this man, we see that he is left by his wife with his his son, who is a younger child. And it's not only that his wife has walked out on him, he also is having trouble maintaining employment. He's financially unstable. So much so that him and his son have to bounce around. They go to homeless shelters, even at perhaps their lowest moment, sleeping in a public restroom just so that they can have shelter from the rain one night. And yet, despite all the adversity, he's able to land a job as an intern, as a broker at a company, as a banker. And what's fascinating is that he goes to the interview and he really wants to try to get a job. He's trying to get up on his luck, but he doesn't have a collared shirt to wear to the interview, so he has to wear an undershirt. And yet, despite all the odds, he does get the gig. He becomes an intern and starts working for a short time with this company. And he manages, and the last day, he manages to get a collared shirt and a suit. And he comes in thinking that it's his last day, that he's going to be let go by the company, that he's going to be back out on the streets. And he shakes hands with all the big CEOs and bosses. And he says, I figured I'd wear a suit being the last day and everything. And the boss says... Wear a suit tomorrow because you're going to start working here and it's going to be your first day. And over all the adversity, over all the homelessness, the financial struggles, he has this victory, this unexpected victory, despite all the odds being against him. And the film ends beautifully with him rushing to his son and just holding his son in a moment of love and triumph that despite all the circumstances that appeared, this family was still able to succeed and make it. We love underdog stories. We love unexpected victories. And they happen not just in movies and sports, but also in God's word time and time again. We can think of even just the Old Testament. We can think of Israel and Egypt. Egypt, this great and prosperous nation. And yet the Lord delivers Israel from their hand. We can think of the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6 to say that that's an unorthodox military strategy is putting it lightly. They simply defeat Jericho by marching around and walking around, being obedient to what God has told them to do. Judges chapter 7, our passage today, is another unexpected victory. So we're going to look at this pivotal chapter in the Gideon narrative in three points. We want to look at first God's shrinking of the army. We then want to look at, in the midst of Gideon's fear, We want to look at the security that God gives him through this interpretation of the dream. And then finally, at the end of the narrative, we want to look at the success that God grants to Gideon. So looking first at the shrinking down of the army. So this is about in the middle of the Gideon narrative. We've just been introduced to him in the chapter before. But we see that he is 
to say that he's a little troubled, let's just say that, that he has doubts about God's promises. At the end of the previous chapter, he's asked God for three different signs. So every time he gives him, he gives him a test and the Lord succeeds in passing the test. But Gideon's not quite satisfied. He always says, Lord, please, just one more, just one more test. Let me, let me be assured of your promises. And so we see that Gideon coming into this, that this is going to be a pivotal moment for him. Many commentators point out that in chapter 6, Gideon is the one that's testing the Lord. But now in chapter 7, the roles are flipped. And the Lord is testing Gideon in his faith by shrinking down this army. And so we'll just look at, let's just jump into the passage. So looking at one, I want to, verse 1, I want to point out just a couple things that are significant about the name and the location that's happening, that the narrator is priming us for how we should read this narrative. He's, he calls his name Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. Perhaps that's confusing. Why does Gideon have two names? Is he having an identity crisis? What's going on? In the, previous, in the previous passage, we see that Israel, really in all the judges' cycle, they're in a cycle, a downward cycle of spiritual idolatry and adultery, that their hearts are divided between the Lord and between the idol gods that they've made. And particularly in this time in Gideon's life, they have created altars and sanctuaries that they can worship Baal, the false god that they've made. And Gideon, in obedience, destroys those altars. He takes down the Baal worship from Israel. And so what this name means in Hebrew, why he's given this name, is it means victory over Baal. That's why he has this name here. And so the narrator is pointing us by using his alternative name that he's given in this chapter it's priming us to know that there's going to be another victory in this chapter as well. And yet also the location is significant as well. We read that they're encamped beside the spring of Harad. This is important to know that the Bible does not happen in a vacuum, that these are real locations and real places that we could go to today. The names might be different, but this is a historical place. But what happens oftentimes in the Old Testament and Hebrew is that they do play on words and puns. It's a very poetic language. And so the specific location, harad, is very similar to the, the verb to tremble or to fear in Hebrew. And so we see that there will be a victory but that this is going to be a test of Gideon's faith. There's going to be fear and trembling that he encounters as well. And so with the narrator starting to paint the scene for us, this is on the eve of battle with the Midianites, a nation, an eastern nation that has oppressed them, that has kept them in poverty and captivity. And we learn that he starts off with 32,000 soldiers. Sol I can never say that. It's always, it's always the body part of the army. He starts with 32,000 men. And we'll see, we'll see later in the narrative that this is nothing compared to the Midianite army. That even with what he starts with does not hold a candle to the size of the army. They're already outnumbered. They're already outpowered by this great nation. And yet at, at almost every turn... This narrative subverts our expectations of what we appear to happen next. Instead of the Lord saying, you don't have enough men, I need to add more men to the army. He comes to Gideon in verse 2 and he says, the people with you are too many to give the Midianites into your hand. And the reason he says this is he knows their hearts, he knows their inclinations. And he says, if you have even this many men, your hearts will be tempted to take credit for yourself. 
we hear echoes of Deuteronomy 8, 17 and Deuteronomy 32 where the Lord comes to Israel and he reveals to them, he says, you are the nation that I've chosen. You are my chosen people. And he makes plain, he said, I didn't choose you as a nation because you were stronger than the others, because you were more numerous, you were more prosperous, but he chose them because they were small, because they were insignificant. They're a monument of his power, of his mercy as their covenant God. And so he wants them to have no temptations to take glory for themselves. He wants them to know that this is a victory from the hand of the Lord. This is a work of the Lord, not of your hand, Gideon, not of your men. And so in order to do this, he gives them kind of two sequences in order to shrink down this army. The first happens in verse 3. He says, go to them and proclaim, who's ever fearful and trembling, have them return home. Now, this is not unique to this circumstance. It's not like God just kind of made this up. But if we look in Deuteronomy 20, which is the the Israelite laws, particularly for military as a nation, this was something that was practiced. That verse very similar says, to the generals, right before you go into a battle, you're called to to ask a question. Is there any man who's fearful and faint-hearted? And Deuteronomy 28 says, let him go back to his house. And so this was common in Israelite military practice. So Gideon and the Lord is using what he's already revealed in the law of the nation of Israel to shrink down this army. And so we learn that there were 22,000 military men that were afraid, and so he's left with just 10,000. If you're a pragmatist like me and perhaps like Gideon, it's so easy to put yourselves into his shoes already. You're saying, we already have lost more than half our army. 10,000, that's still not good odds. We still are going up against a much bigger army. But then the Lord comes back to him again, even with the 10,000. And and he says to him, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Again, this is the second sequence of how the Lord's going to to test this army, to shrink it down. The, The word test there is interesting. This was commonly used in, in context of refining or using metal. It's cutting away the excess and the dross of gold and silver. It's cutting away the impurities, the unneeded things in order to have the metal that you're making. And so really we see the Lord's orchestrating this in his hand. He's cutting it down. He's cutting away the excess. He was going to show his great power to Gideon and the Israelites. He says, you don't need these 10,000 men. I'm going to cut away what we don't need. And so he brings them down. He does bring them down to the water. And the Lord reveals to them, he said, there's going to be two groups who drink differently. And so as we read this, as you prepared for this this week, this always kind of stands out in the narrative. There's a lot of weird things that happen in this narrative, but perhaps this is one of most interest to us. Why are they, why is the group chosen who drinks the way they do? And why do people get down on all fours and drink like dogs? Why would people do that? A lot of commentators are divided on what exactly the reason is. Some people have proposed that the people who get down on a knee and drink, that those are actually the better, the better men, that they're more aware, that they're not putting their head down, that if an enemy came and invaded, that they would be prepared and they would be ready to jump to their feet and fight at any moment. We ultimately don't know. There's another theory that the men who actually lapped were scared, flipping that argument on its head. 
We don't have an exact definition, so I'm not going to solve the mystery for you today. I'm not sure if we'll ever know. But what is clear is what the text has shown us. We're not clear if these are competent men, if these are the best men, or if they're the weaker men. But really what the Lord's interested in is shrinking down this army. He wants them to know, to maintain that the focus is on the Lord, that he is the origin of the victory, that he's the driving force in this victory. And so only 300 men who drink in the way that the Lord has prescribed are chosen. And the Lord declares to Gideon, he gives him this promise. Even as he shrunk down this army, he does give him this promise in verse 7. And he says, with these 300 men, I will save you. He's giving him his promise right here. He's letting him know, even though you've seen, you've seen your army dwindle radically, 90% of your army is gone you are going to win this battle. I will save you, Gideon. This is my promise to you. I will give the Midianites into your hand. Let the other men go to the tent. And here we begin to see a little bit of a progression in Gideon. In the previous chapter, he may have doubted or asked for another test or sign, but we do see that he is obedient to the Lord here, that he does ultimately send the men back to the tent. He doesn't grovel or say, are you sure we we can't keep a couple of those guys or just maybe, maybe 330 or so. He does. He sends the men back to the tent. He's obedient to what the Lord has called him to do. But it's not only just that the army is much smaller now, too, that points to the fact that this is going to be a really unorthodox military strategy, but also the weaponry that they use as well. Look in verse 8. He gives the men, the 300 men, the provisions in their hand. So he gives them a terrifying trumpet to use to go into battle. And then he gives, and then he gives them torches, we read later on. Now, it's not very frequent that we think of something that you would use in your orchestra lessons as something that you would use for battle. But this is pointing that this is the Lord. Even the absurdity of what they use, what their choice weapons are, is pointing that this is the Lord's battle to win. It's not going to be because they had the best military intelligence or swords or even shields, but that the Lord's driving this. With 300 men and trumpets and jars and torches, he's going to give them a victory over a much greater army. The book of Judges is, we can kind of think of it that it is a repetition of a cycle that Israel commits idolatry. They, they walk away from the Lord, and so the Lord, to punish them, gives them into the hand of a foreign nation that oppresses them. Israel cries out as a nation. God raises up a deliverer. He delivers them, and then the cycle happens all over again. They commit idolatry and so on. It can get a little repetitive and monotonous as we look at the spiritual idolatry of Israel. But also, the Judges comes to us as well. It, it came to the Israelites as a book to both comfort them, to let them know who the true Lord is in contrast to the idol gods, but also to convict them of their divided hearts, of their spiritual idolatry. In Gideon's time, really all he's known is oppression at the hands of this nation. Like the former Israelites in the time of Egypt and in the wilderness, he has not experienced those great acts of God in person. He's heard of them in God's word, but he has not experienced them yet. And so this is a test of his faith in God. Will you trust in your covenant Lord, or will you look to your circumstances? 
Friends, even while this narrative is written many years ago, it comes to us to comfort and convict us as well, that we are so often like Gideon, that we can be tempted to look to our external circumstances to want more assurance, more surety of God's promises. And yet the question also comes to us, will we trust the Lord and his faithfulness? Will we look to times past where the Lord guided us through difficult circumstances and trust in him again as new circumstances arise in faith? So we have seen that the Lord has shrunk his army, but, we ha- but Gideon, we have not heard anything that he's groveling, that he's fearful yet, but we do see that in the next, the next section that the Lord goes an extra step to give him security that this battle will be won as well. We see that the Lord is merciful and patient to Gideon, even in the midst of his struggles, to give him a sign. And so we fast forward a couple hours in the narrative. So this is all happening in one day that on the eve of the battle, the military has been shrunk down. But now it says that same night, the Lord tells him to go down into the camp. I've given it into your hand. That's what he's already told him. And yet the Lord knows the frame and heart of his servant. He has not forgotten what's happened in chapter 6. He knows exactly what's going on in Gideon's heart, that he's afraid. And it's hard to blame him. I don't think any of us sitting here in Gideon's shoes would not be afraid having to see your army dwindle down and going into the eve of a battle. So the Lord accommodates him and he says, go down in the camp, but if you're afraid, I'll give you a sign that will help you to trust in my promises. And so he takes one of his servants. I don't think that the servant is a military man, but there's someone who would have been a kind of an assistant and with him. So it gives him someone to go down, and he will he- the Lord promises that he'll hear something that will strengthen his hand as he goes into this battle. And so he goes down into the camp in verse 12, and I like to just, just un- unfold the narrative in this sequence here because I think it's a little ironic and funny the way this unfolds. He's told to go down in the camp that he'll have something, he'll see something or hear something that will encourage him and strengthen his hand. And yet as the sequence progresses, the first thing we are told is that as he comes into the camp, he sees how numerous this army is. He knows that he's lost his 300 men. But the first thing he sees, he's told that he's going to see something comforting. And yet perhaps from our point of view, it's the exact opposite. He sees how numerous and prosperous this army is that he's going against. And look carefully at verse 12. We've we've been focusing on the Midianites, that that's the main oppressor of Israel, but they're not the only army that's there as well. This is a tag team of other nations that have joined together. We read that it's also the, the Midianites as well as the Amalekites and also all the people of the east. It's probably not literally all the people, but what the text is getting at here is that it's not just one nation, that there's multiple nations that have come together. They've put their, their weaponry together, their resources together, and so it's 300 men against all these nations of the east. And not only that, but also that they have camels. They're resourceful in the animals that they have. This is a picture of prosperity of these nations, that owning cattle, owning camels, was a great sign that you were wealthy, that you were resourceful. And the text shows us, it says it's like the sand in the seashore. There's just a great abundance. The point is that you're not able to number it. And yet the Lord is faithful to do what he says. 
It is in the Lord's providence that he has orchestrated this whole divine event that Gideon has come down into this camp at just the right time to just the right tent to hear these two men that the Lord has given a dream. And the, he, Gideon overhears this dream, and one of the enemy soldiers says, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent laid flat. Usually, dreams, we try not to read too much into them, what they mean. We wake up confused from our dreams a lot. And as we read this, we're thinking, what in the world does this dream mean? How is this going to be a comfort to Gideon? This guy saw a piece of bread fly into camp, and it overturned the tent. What is the Lord trying to get at? What is he trying to show Gideon, his servant? I think that in the Old Testament, dreams are highly symbolic, and that's how we're meant to read this as well. That the barley bread is symbolic of Israel as a great agricultural nation, that they would have had lots of barley as a nation. So the bread's representative Gideon in Israel, but that the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of East, they were very nomadic people. They moved around without a land, and so a tent is very fitting for them. That would have been their primary home as they moved from place to place, living Intense. And we see that this interpretation is confirmed by the comrade in verse 14. He says, with great clarity, and we need to we can't rush past this and miss just how crazy this is to see that in the Lord's providence this happens. This is a polytheistic Midianite who has never known Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And yet with great clarity, he hears this dream which appears so abstract and weird to us. And he says, without missing a beat, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand the Midian and all the camp. He's confessing that about his own army. I don't think we're meant to read that as this is a joyful thing, that he's having kind of a conversion moment, that he's going to switch sides to fight with Israel. But throughout the Old Testament, the book of Daniel makes clear to us that the one who gives the right interpretations to dreams is the Lord God. The Lord has granted this polytheistic, unbelieving Midianite to rightly interpret this dream in order that it might strengthen the hand of his servant Gideon. And Gideon, upon hearing this promise, hearing this interpretation of the dream, he falls down and worships. It's a sign of adoration, a sign of trust, that he's believing in God's promises, that this dream, this interpretation will come true. He's embracing God's promises through this interpretation. And we see there's a great shift in Gideon that where he started in verse 6, he's trembling, he's fearful, constantly asking for signs. We see even in this section that he's probably afraid because he does go down. He takes the Lord up on his offer. And yet look at him. Just think about this in the rest of the narrative in verse 15. He comes back no longer afraid but with great confidence in the Lord's promises. And he says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So the scene has been set. We've seen the army has shrunk down. The Lord has given him a security in his promises. And now they just need to execute the actual battle. And now we move into seeing the success of the battle as well. 
verses 16 through 18 continue to unfold and showing us a newfound confidence that, the Lord, that Gideon has in the Lord despite his fearfulness, his prior fearfulness. He starts to move into action. He starts to embrace these promises. And so he divides the 300 men into three companies. The point of this is that they can appear that they actually have a larger army than possible. And so we'll see that they spread out around the camp. It's not as if kind of the 300 men are narrowly focused. They're all coming from the same location. But as they spread out into the different companies and blow these trumpets, it appears to the Midianites, the Amalekites, they're actually a greater army than they realize. They don't know that their army is so small. And so they use some military strategy to multiply the, the projection of their army. But also Gideon is embraced in faith. We see that he starts to put trumpets into their hands. He's embracing the weaponry of choice that the Lord has given to him. And they're also given torches with jars inside. Gideon again confidently says, look at me and do likewise. He's no longer afraid, but really moving forward with a great confidence. And he orchestrates this plan. He says, follow me. When I blow the trumpet, you also blow the trumpet and smash the jars and shout for the Lord and also for Gideon. I think that we are meant to see a little bit of a progression in Gideon in this chapter, that his faith is commended, as we'll talk about in a little bit in Hebrews chapter 11. But was this part of the Lord's plan for him to shout out for the Lord and then also to inscribe his name also and for Gideon? I think as we read through the Gideon narrative that he's a, he's a complicated and kind of a mixed character to understand. And so I think we're meant to read this kind of mix that he is trusting in the Lord. He is shouting that this is the Lord's victory, but also ascribing a little glory, a little credit, a little power to his name in the meanwhile. So they surround the camp. They, the, the hundred men move around. They move to the outskirts of the camp. And again, strategically, we see that they're going to start their attack in the middle watch. There are a couple different ways that time was divided in the ancient Near East. We're not exactly sure how the Midianites and Amalekites would have done it. There's perhaps kind of a three-watch system. But really what's important to know is that they're choosing to do this at a time of transition. So there's someone who, there are people in the army that are staying up. They're paroling around the outskirts of the camp to try to prevent a sneak attack or if an attack comes that they can warn the rest of the camp. And so they choose to do this just as they're making a transition of watches. So there's new, there's new people coming on to the scene. And so perhaps there's, there's, there's tiredness, there's less awareness, but also they're catching them in the midst of a transition to attack. And so they choose at this time, and they all blow the trumpets and break the jars, and they, held their they hold their torches in their right hand and blow their trumpets, and they cry out for the Lord and for Gideon. And absolute pandemonium happens in the camp of the Midianites. Despite having 300 men, despite just having trumpets and jars and torches, and no actual weaponry that could hurt these people, we see the Lord's fingerprint all over this victory. That despite the unorthodox method that they've used, 
that there is a great divine-inspired fear in the army, that they hear this, they see in all these sounds. This is really psychological warfare at its best, and this results in them fleeing and running away. That we read this numerous army with these, um, these abundant resources fleeing the scene from 300 men who don't actually have any weapons, but from the appearance, it appears like they do. And furthermore, we see the Lord's hand in this and that he not only creates a divine fear in them as they flee, he also turns them against one another. The Israelites don't even need to go down and fight them. The Lord has turned the, the men against one another. They start fighting each other. They're doing the work for Israel without Israel having to take much effort at all. We read that they flee and they run away. And yet, as we mentioned, the book of Judges is a cycle. That we have seen this story before. That if we were to go back to the Deborah narrative and the narrative with Barak, it says similar language about the army, the enemies there. They flee the scene. The repetition of both the deliverer and Gideon and also the deliverance, the repetition of this that we've seen before and we'll see again and again in the book of Judges shows that this is not the ultimate deliverer. This is not the ultimate victory that we need, that these are going to happen again, that we need a once-for-all deliverer, a once-for-all victory. And we see that we have that in the message of the gospel. And yet similar to this narrative, the gospel in Christ Jesus completely subverts our expectations, our realities. Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes down from heaven and takes on our flesh, living the life of perfect righteousness that we could never live. And yet, amongst his 12 closest companions and the disciples, he's betrayed by one of them. He's handed over. He's beaten. He's flogged. He's spit on. He's hung on a cross, a shameful and gruesome death. And he, the eternal Son of God, who is our Savior, hangs next to two convicted criminals right next to him on the cross. And he lays in a tomb three days dead. None of us, none of the disciples, in how we view things in the world would expect that this is how God would accomplish the salvation of his people, through a cross, through suffering, through death. And yet it is the magnificent wisdom of God in the gospel that despite all these things, that even in the midst of the cross, something that was so foolish and shameful, God shows his power and wisdom that he specifically uses the cross, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, because it is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world. And yet we see that's exactly why God chooses to use this means of the cross. It is not a display of earthly wisdom, but of his great wisdom and power, using that what is, what is weak and foolish to the world 
to accomplish the most magnificent thing ever happened in human history, the salvation of his people, the reconciliation of sinners to a holy God. And it is in the great power by his spirit that on the third day he rose Christ from the dead. And in this, through the cross, through his death and through his resurrection, accomplishes a victory over sin and death and Satan, giving salvation to his people. The gospel completely, like in this narrative, it subverts our expectations. It's an unexpected victory from the eyes of the world. And yet, like Gideon, we too can be tempted to take a boasting to ourselves. As we think about the gospel, we might be tempted, if we can paraphrase, for Christ, but also for me, this happened. We can be tempted to take credit to ourselves in the gospel and the salvation accomplished for us in Christ. And yet the beauty of the gospel is not that it happens in a way that is foolish and shameful to the world, but Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace, that we were dead in our trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath. As we think of at the end of that beautiful pericope that highlights the beauty of God's grace to us in the gospel, it says that you are saved by faith, not works, so that no one may boast. We accomplished nothing in the gospel, but everything is accomplished for us. We contributed nothing to the salvation and righteousness of Christ that's given to us. And yet Gideon serves as such a relatable figure and person. In his imperfections, in his weakness, in his struggles to embrace God's promises, so often we find ourselves relating to Gideon. And yet, beloved, he's commended for his faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He made it into what we call that great hall of faith. If he had not been a man of faith, he would not be included in this chapter even in the midst and in spite of Gideon's weaknesses and imperfections, we read and know from time and time again in the Old Testament, that's exactly why God uses him. God does not choose what is strong in the eyes of the world, what makes sense, what's conventional. Time and time again, he uses broken and imperfect people. I like to just think about a couple of these people. Thinking of Jacob, the beginning of Genesis, the original kind of swindler and um, backstabber. How many of us who have kids would want Jacob to be in the nursery right now watching our kids? Would we trust Jacob with that? And yet, it's in spite of his brokenness that he's used. The Lord still chooses to use him. All of the judges, deeply, deeply flawed people, but yet the Lord uses them for his purposes. We could go on. We'll think of a couple in the New Testament. Even the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, a persecutor of the church. Even when the Lord comes to his servant and says, I have converted, formerly called Saul, go to him. I have a message for him. And the servant of the Lord there in Acts, are you sure, Lord, this guy? I've heard stories about Saul. He, he hates Christians. He's persecuted the church. And yet Paul declares in 1 Timothy that that's why he's chosen, that the Lord might demonstrate his grace and mercy to him as a sinner. What does this mean for us? 
Beloved, it means that in our imperfections and our weakness and all these things, the Lord still uses his people, not in spite of those things, but because of those things. That the Lord does not choose those who are strong, those who have it all together. That's none of us. None of us would be able to be used for God's service if that was true. And so, beloved, if you're here today, you struggle to feel that the Lord could use you. You feel like you're not a good enough spouse, you're not a good enough parent, a good enough kid, a good enough student, a good enough worker. The Lord uses his people in their brokenness, in their weakness. Each person here today has unique gifts that God has given to you, that you are an important part of this body, and the other members of this body need your gifts. We need to be served and loved by you because you have a gift that someone else in this church doesn't have. Paul is very clear. There's no member of the body that we can get rid of. There's no indispensable members. We need your gifts, and God can use you despite where you're at. But also, beloved, this is the beauty of the gospel, that in the midst of our imperfections and our struggles with sin, our weaknesses, that we're not told to do better. We're not told to just white-knuckle it, try to improve, be a better person, do better, do more good this year. But the gospel comes to us in our brokenness, in our insecurities, It assures us daily that his mercies are new for us each day, that we are secure in the arms of Christ and the salvation given to us, that we are loved and accepted before our Heavenly Father because of Christ, that we are his sons and daughters, that his promises will not be retracted. But friends, like Gideon, we need to have faith. And such a one of the most important aspects of faith is trust. It's not going further and further into our efforts, into a confidence in our own flesh, but it's looking outside ourselves to God's promises and embracing and resting and trusting in those promises for our salvation alone, for our right standing before God. But friends, also for our sanctification as well, we trust and rest in Christ for that that in our struggles with sin, in our weaknesses, that God can work in us by his Holy Spirit, putting to death the old man, making alive the new. We need to look outside of ourselves and further and further entrust into the arms of Christ, into his gospel. I don't know where everyone is at, where you are in the pews today, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're here visiting today, But if you're not a Christian, you're not walking with Christ, you're not sure about Christianity and the gospel, I would put this question before you. That in your family, in your workplaces, in your relationships, and in the world, when you mess up, when you have moments of brokenness, moments of insecurity, moments of weakness, are you met with grace and mercy and forgiveness? If you're not trusting in Christ, would you look to him in faith, forsaking yourself, forsaking your own efforts, trusting in him alone, knowing that even in the midst of our brokenness and our sin, that when we come to him in faith and repentance, that there's grace, that there's acceptance before holy God, that there's love to be had in the arms of our heavenly Father. Isn't that what we all long for? 
that even in our worst days and our most broken moments, that we are loved, that our relationship status has not changed. And beloved, in the gospel, that is what we have, that when we come to Christ with repentance, that we are assured of his love and the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake alone. Whether you're walking with Christ or you're not walking with Christ, turn to him in faith, trusting in what he has promised to you in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that even in the difficult book of Judges where there is so much idolatry, there is so much divided hearts between you and idols, Lord, that you bring conviction to your people and comfort and that you, in the eyes of the world, you subvert our expectation that in the gospel of Christ Jesus, you use what is foolish in the eyes of the world, but it is the power of salvation to your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you comfort us. Excuse me. We pray that you would grant us faith and trust in Christ, that we would look to him with a renewed confidence and love, looking to him, looking outside of ourselves and more deeper and deeper into Christ. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We pray that you would continue to strengthen us and guide us, that as we go through our weeks, that you remind us of the cross, the sign of your goodness and love and favor to sinners, even in the difficult moments of our struggles with sin and our brokenness. Father, comfort us with the truth and the hope of your gospel, not only for this life, but the life to come. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his life, death, resurrection, and obedience. We thank you that we are accepted, that we can come before you in prayer, for you are indeed our Heavenly Father. We pray and ask all these things in the matchless and most beautiful name of Christ Jesus. Amen.